Well, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses. Um, we are now, which feels uh, weird and, and wonderful all at the same time, we are 10 weeks into our series in the book of Galatians. Um, it, it just feels like yesterday to me that we, we started it, and yet uh, so long ago, because we have covered so much in this book of Galatians, and I have loved this series and thoroughly valued our time together in this book. Uh, I believe it is so relevant and so incredibly important. And, and in fact, uh, last year, at the end of last year, I had a different plan for the beginning of the year, um, which usually some, at times is how it goes. I have a plan, but then God has a way better plan. Um, so we spend time together, and he says, that's neat, but no. <laughs> um, and so through much prayer and, and study, what was clearly most necessary and important was to have our focus in this next series, in this next season for us, is to focus in on our freedom in Christ. Now, there are, there are several reasons for this and why I uh, thought this and believed this, is that I felt that there were things that were really weighing us down, a type of bondage that some of us were in that were, was really causing us to not fully be free in Christ. And also that some of us, although we believe in Christ, we've been seeking sin rather than our Savior. And I believe this to be true of us in some cases. And through meeting with, with many of you and praying for all of you, I, I got this image in my mind constantly that although we are free in Christ, we are not walking in that freedom always, but some of you are in chains and you don't even know that you're free. You're walking around as, as a slave and as someone who's in bondage. And so in this series, the past nine weeks, we have looked at our freedom in Christ. And I just, for those of you who are new this morning or have not been around for a while, I just want to give you a brief overview of what we've covered so far. Because we've unpacked so much. In fact, in the first week back in January, in the middle of January, we saw how Paul was really reestablishing his authority, his authority and making it clear what the true gospel was. Then we saw in the, the second week that Paul drove home the point for us that there is no other gospel that those who preach another gospel, so there's no other gospel, but if someone was to preach another gospel, even angels themselves, he says, should be and would be accursed. He uses the word anathema. And then in the third week, Colton taught and he shared and, and we saw that Paul was defending his calling. That it was not by men, but by God. His apostleship was not established by other men, but by God himself. And Paul even laid out his own conversion story and we saw as Paul explains what Jesus had done in his life. And then, we, and then in week four, Paul shares about his journey to meet with the other apostles, where he lays before them his gospel belief and his gospel message. And we saw that he did this for the sake of gospel unity. And then in week five, we talked about conflict, a subject we all love. We looked at the conflict between Paul and Peter and how Paul risked public opinion for the sake of gospel unity, that this was his heart's desire. Because Peter was walking in hypocrisy, and he was not walking in Christ. And so Paul addressed this issue with him for the sake of gospel unity. And then in week six, we looked at justification. 
and how our justification is rooted in faith of Jesus's works. That salvation is by grace alone. God's loving act through faith alone, our trusting faith in Christ alone. Christ's perfect sacrifice. And then in week seven, Jaron taught, and we saw as Paul asked many questions and gave some answers that these confused Galatians were saved not by the works of their own hands, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And then in week eight, Paul drove home faith alone. Remember I told you that Paul was getting incredibly repetitive and and for someone who's trying to unpack this week after week, looking at it and going, man, how do I hold to the truth while trying to unpack the same thing every single week? And so Paul used the Abrahamic argument here that Abraham was saved by faith, not by works. And that ultimately Paul's focus and his aim in this text was to point them back to gospel freedom. And so then we saw last week in week nine that Paul argued that the law is good when you use it for what it was intended for, but that there is a difference between the law as God intended it and law as legalism. But in the end, ultimately, the law still does not save you. So now today, as we are in week 10 over this entire series, Paul has been really drawing a contrast for us. The contrast between the Christian that is walking in freedom, walking in Christ, and the Christian that is stuck in bondage. The Christian that's stuck in bondage of legalism and the Christian that's stuck in bondage of lawlessness. And so this is an important contrast. And in our text today, Paul draws another contrast. He gives us a word illustration of contrast between sons and slaves. And Paul's aim is to really help these believers understand that reliance on the law is not a sign of maturity, but of immaturity. That only faith in Christ produces children who become heirs of God's promise. And so what we're going to see and unpack from our text this morning is that we were once in bondage under the elementary principles but we have been redeemed that we might receive adoption and as adopted children, we are heirs through God. And so we're gonna read in Galatians chapter four, starting in verse one. And this morning, if you don't have a Bible uh, with you, there are some out in this back area or in the commons. And also if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Um, And it'll also be on the screen behind me. So Galatians chapter four, starting in verse one. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Will you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that this morning as we go to look at these seven verses, what we know is true of you, of your character, is that you are a God that relentlessly pursues busted up broken people like us. So God, I pray that we may see rightly the work of Jesus that because of it, not of our own works, but of Jesus's works, his finished works, that we can now stand rightly before you. And so, Father, this morning, we come before you, not with anything we can bring or anything that we have, although often, like children, we do that. Father, I pray that this morning, we would come before you with all that we are, laying that at your feet in surrender for all that you are. So God, we thank you and we praise you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So in verse one, the phrase that Paul uses, what I am saying is really referring back to the text of Galatians chapter three, where Paul argued that justification is by faith instead of dependence upon the law, which is temporary and secondary in nature. So I I want you to understand this because often what, what happens when we see in our Bibles a chapter break or a verse break, it doesn't always lend itself to the writer, to the author. And so whenever Paul says, therefore, or what I am saying, we need to really refer back to, so what are you saying? What are you saying? What is that therefore? Why is the therefore therefore? And so in chapter 3, verse 29, Paul was transitioning from his previous illustration to the next when he says, if you are Christ's, in verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so here, Paul point, he really paints a picture for us in this text that by way of an illustration, he is comparing a child and a slave. And in this, Paul's illustration is about being under the law before Christ came. That because when a child is not yet an adult, as he says in verse two later, the first part, he says he is under guardians and managers. And so Paul used this language to describe the law back in verse 24 of chapter three. So there's value for us to look back as we move forward in this to understand the context of what Paul is saying. And so in verse 24, he says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. So Paul is reminding us what we saw and learned last week, that the law is good when it is used for what it was intended for, but that there is a difference between the law as God intended it and law as legalism. But remember, in the end, it still does not save. The law does not and cannot save you. That it is a guide in place to keep us from our own destruction. Okay, let me give you an example of this. Because the law both reveals and restrains us, but it does not save us. Okay, so let me give you an example that probably all of us could relate to. On your way here, let's say on the way you were on a road that the speed limit was 35 miles an hour. How fast you go? 40, yep. 
I mean, if we're all honest, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but if we're all honest, we probably went faster than what was truly posted. And so we, we kind of pushed that law, but if that law was not put in place, ultimately what we would know is that we would continue to push that to our own destruction. And so the law was really put in place to restrain, to guide Israel through as the people of God. And so it both reveals the issue that we're constantly pushers and it also restrains us from our own destruction, but it does not save. And so in this text, we see as a, as a minor before the legal age of maturity, the young son is subjected to the guardians and trustees who supervise and discipline and control him, that his behaviors and conduct is to be regulated by them until the time set by his father has arrived when he will be free from their regulation. And so now in the second half of verse two, Paul really illustrates the end of the son being under guardians and managers when he says that it is until the date set by his father. Now in both Jewish and Greek cultures, there were definite coming of age ceremonies where a boy stopped being a child and started being a man with legal rights as an heir. And so think of it this way. Let me give you an example that think of a, of a wealthy ancient household for a moment with a young boy who is destined to inherit all that his father has. And when the boy is just a child, he actually has less day-to-day freedom and authority than a high-ranking slave in the household. But yet he is destined to inherit everything and the slave isn't. So Paul is making a distinction here. He's making the point that under the law, under the elementary principles, we are not free. And so this is where Paul brings, begins to draw contrast on our life before Christ and our life now in Christ. In verse three, Paul says that when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, this illustrates the comparison to our own spiritual condition. Because before we were in Christ, the law was our guardian. We were not yet in Christ, as Paul says earlier. But the law was our guardian to watch over us when we were still children. And so the law's effect in our corrupt nature was to bring us into restriction, into a type of bondage under the elements of the world. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses here, which I believe is important for us to understand, that's stoikia, which can be interpreted to mean elementary principles or even alphabets, the ABCs of life. So Paul tells the Galatians to go beyond these ABCs of the world into understanding God's grace. Because grace really contradicts, is very different than the ABCs of the world. Because under grace, God does not deal with us on the basis of what we deserve. He doesn't deal with us on the basis of our good. He does not justify us by our own good or by our own bad. God's blessing and favor is given on a principle completely apart 
from the ABCs of the world. That his blessing and favor is given, in fact, for reasons that are completely in him and have nothing to do with us. And so when we live on the principles of earning and deserving before God, we live in bondage under the elements of the world. And so here, Paul addresses this because false teaching is according to these elementary principles. In fact, some of the elementary principles that these men are following is that, yes, there is a sense that you are free, but you also must do these things under the law. These behaviors must follow. These ABCs must be a part of your belief, which is completely contradicting to Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have died to the elementary principles of the world. So now, since we are in Christ, we are sons of God through faith in Christ, and we are heirs according to the promise. And so in verse four, Paul describes how Jesus came both at the perfect time and as the perfect redeemer, that we might receive adoption. And he does this because Jesus is fully God. He has the power and the resources to redeem us. And Jesus is fully man, that he has the right and the ability to redeem us. So he came to purchase us out of slavery from our bondage to sin and the elementary principles, the elements of the world. And so in verse five, Paul uses two words that are incredibly important and deeply gospel related. The first is redeem and the second is adoption. And so he uses this first word, which redeeming is an important concept. In verse five, Paul says that Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law. And so that word there, redeem, has the idea of buying back or purchasing out of. So it isn't just rescuing, it's paying a price to rescue. So Jesus has redeemed us from the law, from the curse of the law. That Jesus bought us out from under the law. Jesus became cursed, in fact, on our behalf, as Paul said earlier, that he stood in our place and took the curse we deserved. And he did this for our redemption. And so this word redeem is incredibly important. Now, there's a man by the name of John Newton who wrote a very popular and famous hymn, which is the hymn Amazing Grace. And John Newton, in writing this, knew the incredible intent and purpose of remembering the concept of his redemption that it was very personal for him. Because if you look at John Newton's life, he was an only child whose mother died when he was only seven years old. And then he became a sailor and he went out to sea at 11 years old. And as he grew up, he became the captain of a slave ship. And he had an active hand in the horrible, degrading and inhumane slave trade. And so for him, when he was 23 years old, in fact, on March 10th, 1748, when his ship was in imminent danger of sinking off the coast of Newfoundland, he cried to God for mercy and he found it. 
He cried out to God and he never forgot how amazing it was that God received him as bad as he was that God received him. And so to keep it fresh in John's memory, he fastened across the wall of his fireplace mantle of his study, the words of Deuteronomy 15, 15. It says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Let me tell you that there is value in reflecting on our redemption, that we are redeemed. But let me tell you why, because it's not to go back to who we once were before Christ, but to see and remember what and who we are now in Christ. So it's not to look back to wallow in, I cannot believe I was, but rather to see, I cannot believe that Christ redeemed me that now I am in Christ. And so then we see, as Paul says that we've been redeemed, then also he uses that second word, adoption. In the second half of verse five, Paul says that Jesus' redeeming work is so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, I think that it's really easy for us to disconnect from this concept those of us that have not grown up with a story of personal adoption in our family. But this is so critical for us, especially as Western Christians, because in our culture, we do not value life the way God values it, especially when it comes to children. It is an incredible privilege and blessing to have children, but our our world often views them more as inconveniences than blessings. We mess with God's good intent of the blessing to have children. And if we're honest, I believe if we are incredibly honest, in the church, we don't do the best job either. We defend the value of it when people speak of abortion, but when, when it comes to the, the act of adoption, we kind of play a backseat role. We speak to it. Yes, the Bible's clear on it. If that works for you, but we still lack obedience and practice when there are so many kids in foster care that have no clue about their true value, both to the Christian and to Christ. I mean, for, for me, when I was studying the book of, of Romans, which for me took a long, long time because I wanted to look at every single word. What is Paul getting at with this Roman people? And I remember getting to Romans 8 and being floored by the concept of adoption. I remember telling Shauna, I, I, even if we never have kids, I believe that we should uh, adopt one because this concept is incredible. Now, I've also told Shauna we should only have two kids, so I've contradicted myself, and hopefully, you know, she, we, we catch on, and God helps me. Because this is important. God's plans are greater than your plans. And so I believe that we should take this concept seriously, not only in our thought, but in our practice. And so Paul draws on the example of Roman customs of adoption, that where adopted sons were given absolutely equal privileges in the family and equal status as heirs. 
And so in this process where an adoptee shifted from being under the authority of his biological father or under no authority without a biological father in his life, now he becomes under the authority of his adopted father. And so even Roman emperors were also known to adopt men not related by blood in order to give them their office and authority. So this concept is critical for us. That Paul uses this term metaphorically to describe becoming a part of God's family. So linked to the image of a minor waiting for the time to inherit his father's estate, what Paul is saying that is in Christ, the Galatians, us together are now part of Abraham's family, which is also Christ's family. And so then Paul begins to shift. He says, if you have been adopted, then here's what it looks like for you to be adopted. Your life may have been a story of being fatherless. Your life may be a story of bondage, of pain. But in Christ, here's what it means for you now. So in verse six and seven, Paul makes a transition to telling the Galatians what it means to be a son and an heir. In verse six, he says that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now the word Abba, which the spirit calls out, is the Aramaic word for father. It is used by children addressing their fathers in an intimate and affectionate manner. Now, what we also need to understand is that Paul is really alluding to the fact that in the Old Testament, God was not mainly referred to as father. There were times where he was referred to as father, but it was distant because we were separated from God in the way through the law. And so now we see in the gospels that even Jesus uses this language in his prayers. He uses this Aramaic word, father. And so we know that we are the sons and daughters of God by the witness of the Holy Spirit within us. And so Paul said it this way to the Romans when he said in Romans 8.16 that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so let me tell you that it is fitting that those who are in fact sons have the Spirit of the Son in their hearts. And so what this does is it gives us both the right and the ability to cry out, Dad, to God our Father, even as Jesus did. Now let me give you an example of this because I think for some of you, if for you you have a story of a disconnect with your own father or an estranged relationship or you've never known your earthly father, the tendency for us is to view God based on the way that we view our earthly father. But the way God thinks of you is not the way you think about your earthly father. So let me give you an example. My son, who is two years old, so he gets fun when I get to share about my son, because God teaches me a lot in it, in parenting. And Micah is getting to this phase where he is he is continuing to talk so much more. And I am always eager for the conversations we're going to have, even when he annoys me as a little child that doesn't understand. 
And it doesn't matter where I am or what I am doing. He will call out to me, dad, dad. In fact, last night in the midst of my sermon prep, sitting in one of our chairs upstairs, my son climbs up on my lap and says, dad, 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 dad. And you know what? No matter what I am doing or where I am at, I do my best to acknowledge him. Maybe even to get down with him and talk with him because there is nothing I love more than when my son bothers me this way. This is the type of access you and I have to the father. That in our freedom in Christ, God is not some old dude with a white beard off in the garden waiting for you to get perfect. God is a father that you can come before saying, dad, that we can seek him. So also in this, what we need to understand is that it's not by all that we can do. It's by all that Christ has done. That we are adopted children and heirs through God. Now, what I also want us to understand is there's something important we shouldn't miss. And it's the way the truth of the, the doctrine of the Trinity is woven into this text. That God the Father sends God the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of God, the son into our hearts to give us an assurance that we are the sons and daughters of God. Now, I hope you understand that because insurance and assurance are not the same thing. Assurance comes with the confidence of being in Christ. Insurance is the hope that something doesn't go bad, but if it does, we'll have fire insurance that we would have assurance. So then Paul concludes his use of the inheritance metaphor by encouraging the Galatians to then think of themselves no longer as slaves, but as children of God and heirs of his promise. And so this is a completely different ideology, a completely different lifestyle. And so in verse seven, Paul says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So for the Galatian churches to take on the law, it would be to return to being slaves. But as Paul has really argued, the triune God has worked in history and in the hearts of the Galatians to redeem and to liberate them from slavery. This is a work God has done in our lives. So if we are no longer slaves, then we are an heir. In this is a beautiful progression that first we are set free from slavery, that then we are declared sons and adopted into God's family, and third, that as sons we are made heirs. And what that means is it means that we are those who inherit something. And Paul makes it clear, an heir of God through Christ. So what we inherit is God himself. We inherit relationship. We inherit all the blessings that we have in Christ. And so for those who are really in Christ, who really love God, to be an heir of God is the richest inheritance of all. 
And so our release from slavery, our sonship, the spirit of Jesus in our hearts and our status as heirs of God are all birthrights given to us in Christ. And so we receive them through Christ. So really these are things we should be living in and enjoying every day of our Christian life. But I think for some of us, we we get back to that idea of bondage. We go back to the elementary principles of the world. And in commentating on this verse, Martin Luther said, a son is an heir, not by virtue of high accomplishments, but by virtue of his birth. He is a mere recipient. His birth makes him an heir, not his labors. Birth is what makes a son an heir. So let me ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith in him that you would be saved, that you would be spiritually reborn into a new birth, making you an heir, an adopted son, and an adopted daughter? And so remember earlier in verse five that we looked at, Paul said that at the heart of the gospel, Jesus's redemptive work was done that we might receive adoption. That Jesus has done everything needed to do to save. Think about that. Jesus has done everything needed to do to save. So if you want to be saved, If you want to receive salvation, you don't have to do anything. You just have to trust in what Jesus Christ has already done for you. And so this is the hope and the faith that the Galatians had. This is what they trusted in, the finished work of Jesus. But remember, this is what they did have, but they walked away from by believing in the false teachers. They returned to bondage. And so this morning, if you are a believer, if you are a Bible-believing follower of Jesus who has returned to a place of bondage and slavery, may I encourage you, may I reason with you, may I urge you, trust in Christ. Lean not on your own understanding. Trust in Christ. Christ. Cry out to your Father in heaven. Dad, Dad, get with him. Go before him. And this morning, if you are someone who does not believe, can I just reason with you for a moment? Can I encourage you for a moment to put aside your non-belief and your own elementary principles of the world that you would seek Jesus? that you would put your trust in him, in him alone, that you might receive adoption. And so as we come to a close this morning, what I want to just continue to go back to that I believe is a a question that, that Paul does not say, and so I don't want you to take this as something you've missed in scripture, but something I believe we can ask ourselves that's true of the last, several, uh, the last several chapters, if not this book. 
do I trust in the finished work of Jesus? Because if you don't, then what you're doing is trying to maintain your own ability while trying to also walk in adoption. But you cannot be a slave and a son. If you are a slave, then you are under the bondage of slavery. But if you are a son, then it's not about what you will do. It's about what Christ has done. So I encourage you to ask yourself that question. Do I trust in the finished work of Jesus? Let's pray.